I'd like to ask you, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Several years ago, I lived in a house right next door to what has come to be known as a zombie house. A zombie house is a house where the people get underwater on their mortgage, and then they move out, usually under the cover of darkness, and the bank retakes the home and often does nothing with it for many years. And what often happens is the house sits there for a very, very long time, thus being a zombie house. Many of you had seen my neighbor's home that was empty for roughly nine years. Well, what happens to a house when there are no people who live in it for nine years? It becomes full of lots of things, rats, birds, squirrels, bugs. It reverts back to the wilderness. My kids used to love looking out the window of their bedroom, and they would watch the squirrels fight over which one would get into the house because they had eaten a hole through the soffits, so they would climb in through the gutters. And they loved to watch those, those squirrels rip each other apart trying to get inside. What happens to a house when the people leave it alone? It reverts back to being like the woods. It looks like a house from the outside, but inside it's just the wilderness. The only thing that could be done with that house eventually is that it would be torn down. Well, what happens to a church when God is no longer there? It doesn't revert to the woods. It reverts to paganism. Although it might have some external trappings of a true church, and although it might use some of the same vocabulary as a true church, when God is not there it simply becomes another wicked form of pagan idolatry. This past week, there's a holiday that took place that many Christians don't even know exists. It's the day that we call Reformation Day. It's the day that we celebrate the wonderful wonderful ministry of the Reformers who broke away from the Roman Catholic Church and they restored the teachings of the Bible to the people. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the Protestant Reformation. But because that's such an expansive topic, covering roughly a century of some of the greatest and most complex and most important events in history, we're going to just zone in on one person, Martin Luther. Uh, We have a picture of him up here behind me um, that Larry's going to show you here in a second. Um, Martin Luther is one of the greatest individuals in history. We're going to focus on him, but if you know anything about Martin Luther, you'll know that he was a larger-than-life figure that God used in many ways to transform the world for the glory of God. So even when we consider this guy, we're only going to scratch the surface of his story. So we're going to look at Martin Luther, the most significant human figure and the most important events of the last 1,600 years of the church, and we're going to see what he believed to be the center point of the Reformation And we're going to do that by looking at the one verse that was most transformative in his life and therefore in the movement that we now call the Protestant Reformation as they sought to recover the gospel. That verse is Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which says, For in it, speaking of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that today as we do something just a little different and as we consider carefully uh, the way that you have used Scripture to shape the church today, we just ask, Lord, that you would please help us to understand what it means that the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. We pray for every person in this room that we would be renewed in our passion and our love for Jesus Christ as we consider the fact that he has saved us, not because of works done by our hands, but by grace in the working of the blood that he spilled at the cross. We pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 
This morning, I'm going to teach you two Latin phrases. Many of you uh, will probably already know some of them, and uh, that will be a reminder for you. But the first one of them, the first of these Latin phrases, is the one that Martin Luther called the chief article from which all other doctrine flows. Concerning the Reformation, Luther called this doctrine the chief matter. In other words, this is the entire point of division between the Catholic Church and Protestant. John Calvin would later add to this and say, it is the main hinge upon which salvation turns. Perhaps you know what doctrine I'm referring to. It is the doctrine of sola fide, or faith alone. Faith alone is a reference to the biblical fact that we are not saved by works of any kind. We are justified or made righteous by actively trusting that Jesus has paid it all on our behalf. This was central to the teaching of the apostles. It was central to the teaching of the early church. But over the centuries, the Roman Catholic Church had degraded this into a pagan entity that rejected the idea that salvation was by faith alone, and they had rejected it and replaced it with a litany of satanic substitutes. So what are we going to do this morning? We're going to do a brief overview of the life of Martin Luther to see how the Lord used this great reformer to rediscover the truth of sola fide, that the just shall live by faith. Martin Luther was born in a small mining town in Germany in 1483. And if you think being a miner today, someone who mines things from the ground, if you think that is difficult now, imagine how difficult that was before modern electricity and lights and mechanical elevators. Being a copper miner was a miserable life, so Luther's father did everything possible to get Martin into a good college so that he could become a lawyer. Because it seems to be true that just about any time in history, lawyers always have both job and financial security. So as a young man, his father sent him to a place called Erfurt College where he was to study law. And this actually caused Martin Luther to develop a very strong sense of legal justice that would play out through the remainder of his life. On July 17th, 1505, when he was 21 years old, Luther was traveling from his home back to college in Erfurt, and while he was on the road, a massive storm erupted, just completely overtook him. Now, most of us think it's silly to be afraid of storms. In fact, at one point uh, many years ago, I was counseling a couple where the wife was terrified of storms, and the husband just could not understand, why are you afraid to go to work or go outside when it's storming? Now, we tend to think that it's silly to be afraid of thunder and lightning and storms, because most of the time when that's happening, we are inside. You're inside your house, you're inside your car, you are not exposed to the elements, and you certainly are not wandering through the black forest when a massive storm comes through. He was terrified, and as he was traveling, he began to run, and then there was a massive lightning bolt that struck near him, and he, he was certain there was another one coming, and it was coming right for him. So he threw himself against a massive uh, stone, and he reached out to the, toward the heavens, and he screamed that if he would only be saved from the storm, he would commit himself to a life of religious practice and become a monk. But it's important to note that he did not call out to the Lord. In fact, at this point in his life, it's pretty clear that he had never called out to the Lord. He didn't know that he was even supposed to do that. Instead, he did what his whole family had done. He called out to the patron saint of minors, Saint Anne. And he called out and said to her, quote, Help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. And he did just that. And he went back home. He gave away all of his law books. He gave away his cloak. He gave away his law hat. And he then immediately became consumed 
with life in an Augustinian monastery. Now, why did he go to the Augustinians? Mainly because there was one monastery that was Augustinian that was close to him. Now, of the various kinds of monasteries and monastic movements that exist, Augustinians tend to be the harshest. Think pharisaical. And he immediately became consumed with the fact that while he was there at that monastery, he thought back to that storm over and over and was convinced that if he died then he would have been judged by God because he had never done anything to eliminate his sin. So he began a quest to eliminate sin, and he began to be completely obsessed with doing whatever it took to justify himself before God. But the more he learned of the Bible, the more he was convinced that everything he did was doing the opposite, and it was making him more worthy of judgment. So he would go into the confessional booth, and he would confess. He says, five to six hours a day until he would wear those people out. And they would beg him, please stop, please stop. You're not saying anything interesting. There is nothing worth listening to. Just Luther, just go away. So he began doing even harsher things. He tried fasting. He would fast immensely. He even tried fasting from sleep. If you've ever tried that, you know that does bad things to your mind. And then he began trying something called self-flagellation, where he would literally take a whip of leather and he would beat himself with it until his back was raw. He had become more and more aware of the immense burden of his sin that lay on his shoulders, and he couldn't find any way to get it off. He would later look back at this time, and he would say, quote, I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, I murmured greatly because I was angry with God. Martin Luther hated God because he knew that God's standards were higher than anything he could attain. But after six years of living in that misery, he's, he had been studying to be a priest. He was finally given this incredible opportunity along with some other people from his monastery to travel to Rome to take what they called a pilgrimage. Now remember, for Luther... Rome was considered the head of the church. That's where the Pope lives. And he had built this place up in his mind to be a city of God here on earth, a place that would be beautiful, a place that would be free of sin. And then when he got there, he was really incredibly disappointed to see that that place was filled with all sorts of sin, just like everywhere else on earth. But his excitement was not yet diminished because there was one particular site that he wanted to visit. It was a place called the Scala Sancta, um, if we could look at that picture of stairs there, uh, Larry. This is the Scala Sancta. It's in Rome. The Scala Sancta is a place that he desired to go. As you can see, these stairs are still there. I've been there actually multiple times myself. And the Roman Catholic Church claims that these stairs are the stairs that existed in Pontius Pilate's headquarters and that Jesus had gone up and down them when he was being tried. And so obviously, if Jesus' feet touched them, they, obviously they must be holy, they said. So they took them back to Rome. They put them in this church called uh, St. John the Lateran Church. And there they told, during the time of Luther, they told the people that if you were to bow down and kiss each step and pray on each one as you make your way to the top, then by the time you reach the summit, 25 years of sin would be wiped away from your record. And for Martin Luther, that sounded great. 25 years of sin? All I have to do is bow down and kiss these stairs and pray a prayer. Now, you'll see that the people are still doing this. I've actually climbed these stairs many times. I've never bowed on them. Um, Martin Luther went up one by one, and he went up in agony. He went up with joyful desire to be saved, but he went up fearful. And by the time he finally got to the top, he was 
totally terrified because he panicked and he looked down and he said, how can I know if it's true? And he began to yell it towards all the people that were still below him. He said, how can I know if it's true? He was looking back and saying, 25 years of sin, how in the world will I know if I've actually had my sin forgiven? At least when you vote, you get a sticker. Here, he climbed these stairs and got nothing. There was no evidence, there was no proof that anything had been wiped away. And he was terrified once again saying, how can I know if it's true? There is no way to confirm whether or not his dramatic climb up those steps did him any good. This began to put a thought in his mind. How can we know? How can we actually know that our sins are paid for? Now, as I've said, I've been to this many times, and now at the top there's actually a guest book, and in the guest book I would always write Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The just shall live by faith. And before returning to Germany, there's one more thing that we should take note of while we're with Luther in Rome. While he was there, he saw the early stages of the groundwork of a building called St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, We have a picture of that that will be up here for you. St. Peter's Basilica is one of the most beautiful buildings ever built. Uh, But at the time, it was just a bunch of rubble because they had torn down the old church that was there, and they were rebuilding on that site. But a building like that is really, really expensive. So the church was looking for ways to raise funds. So when Luther returned to Germany, one of the things that began to get under his skin about the Roman Catholic Church is that they kept sending salesmen to Germany to sell something called indulgences. You could buy indulgences for dead relatives in order to get them out of purgatory early. Now, in Catholic doctrine, purgatory is the necessary place that you must go to burn off any leftover sin that you didn't deal with before you die. It's an imaginary place, not in the scripture, that they have created. And indulgences basically functioned in the Catholic Church as a get-out-of-purgatory-free card. And who wouldn't want to do that? Who wouldn't want to pay just a little bit of money to make sure that their family members could go immediately to heaven without suffering in purgatory? One particular salesman came to Germany and really began to bother Martin Luther. His name was Johann Tetzel, and he was the epitome of a snake oil salesman. He was known for making up clever little jingles that would stick in people's mind and remind them to give just a little bit more money to the church. His most famous rhyme was, quote, when the money in the coffer rings, then the soul from purgatory springs. I have some friends that are musicians, and they don't work a lot. In fact, several years ago, they made a jingle for a commercial. It was about 16 seconds long, and they were paid enough money that they didn't have to work for another year. I'm no genius, but that seems like a pretty good rate of return. Why is a jingle, why is that little sound bite worth so much money? Well, you know exactly why it's worth so much money, because you hear 1877 cars for kids one time, and then you remember it for the rest of your life. And you'll wake up in the morning for some reason having 1877 cars for kids ringing in your brain. Jingles are very powerful. And he created all these little jingles that would remind people, the church wants your money. And if you give it to them, you can get your family into heaven. In fact, people began to buy indulgences not only for their family to get out of purgatory, but to ensure that when they died, they would not have to pay for those sins in purgatory. In other words, hey, I really want to do something wicked. I want to do something quite evil. Can I just pay you a little bit of money and make sure that that's paid for in advance? You think this is an old system? It's certainly not. 
The Roman Catholic Church still operates this way today. In fact, in 2013, the Pope famously offered to give a free indulgence to anybody who followed him on Twitter. One particular salesman came to Germany and just destroyed the whole system for Martin Luther. He began looking at these things as wicked. And he began writing what we now call the 95 Theses. In fact, that little song that we referred to earlier is directly quoted in Article 27, where he says, They preach human folly who pretend that as soon as money in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Here's just a sampling of a few of the other things that Martin Luther said in that document. Article 32, he says, Those who suppose that on account of their letters of indulgence, they are sure of salvation, will eternally be damned along with their teachers. In short, if you believe that indulgences will save you from hell, then you are going to hell. That's what he says. Or number 45, Christians should be taught that whoever sees a person in need and instead of helping him uses money for an indulgence, obtains not an indulgence from the Pope, but the displeasure of God. In other words, if you buy indulgences, God is not more happy with you, he's more angry with you. Article 82, why does the Pope not empty purgatory for the sake of holy love? After all, he will release countless souls for the sake of sordid money contributed for the building of a cathedral. In other words, let's just say for the sake of argument, Martin Luther was saying, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's true. You can get out of purgatory for free if the Pope says so. Then why wouldn't he just say so for everyone immediately? Why do you have to pay him and get money in exchange? Now, I want to stress that at this time, Martin Luther was not trying to break away from the Roman Catholic Church. He was Catholic. But he started to have his eyes open to some of the surface-level problems that were growing out of the rotten core of Catholic paganism. In fact, he didn't plan for this to be confrontational towards anyone except for Tetzel. On October 31st, 1517, he took this list, the 95 Theses, and he nailed it to the door at Wittenberg, that was a common thing to do in those days. It was called the All Saints Bulletin Board. Back then, they didn't have a social media option, so they had to put things publicly. And so this was a common practice for those who were well-educated. And he wrote this in Latin so that only those who were well-educated could read it, and they could study it, and they could come back in the future, and they could debate it. However, some unknown person came, and they took them down, and then they translated them into German, and then they used the newly uh, designed printing press that had recently been invented, and they used that to spread his 95 Theses all over the countryside of Germany. This is when people began to have their eyes open to the possibility that the Roman Catholic Church was lying to them and scamming them for money. But the 95 Theses really were not a theological argument for justification. In fact, I would contend that Luther wasn't saved at the point that he wrote them. Consider the last of the 95 Theses. 95. He says, And so let them set their trust on entering heaven through many tribulations rather than some false security and peace. What tribulations is he talking about? He is talking about the self-justification that he was putting himself through. He was talking about fasting and pilgrimage and all forms of self-harm. He was angered because he viewed this idea that somebody could get into heaven easily when I am working so hard to do it. He looked at that as a con artist way of avoiding the suffering that he was putting himself through. But then about a year later, Luther was studying Romans 1, and he got stuck on verse 17, which says, For in it, the gospel, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. 
And that rang in his mind over and over and over. And he got stuck there because at first he could not understand it. But finally, he did understand. And I personally believe this is the moment when Luther actually came to saving faith because for the first time he understood that he could approach God not on the basis of his own works but on the basis of trust in Christ alone. Luther began to read the Bible in an entirely new light and he said a totally whole other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Now you had seen how popular the 95 Theses had been with people so he determined to bypass the door at Wittenberg and go straight to the public with his ideas and he began writing furiously and rapidly pamphlet after pamphlet explaining exactly what it says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Today, if you are here and you think you have a relationship with God because you have done something to earn it, then you are contrary to the scripture, just as he was prior to this moment. You are not saved by works. So he began writing all about that. He began writing that the treasury of merit and the prayers of the saints and church attendance and indulgences and grieving, uh, giving to the poor and owning relics and going on pilgrimages and pardons from the Pope and going to confession and doing penance, none of that burns off any extra sin. The blood of Christ is sufficient to cover every sin. And the way that it is applied to us is not through actions, but through trust in Christ. In other words, through the gift of faith. He wrote about all of these things at a furious pace, and these writings began to spread like wildfire across the land. Now, if you know geography, you'll know that between Germany and Rome, there is a large mountain range called the Alps. And so it took a little bit of time for this news to reach the Pope. But when it did, there was one thing that really got under his skin. Luther's writings heavily opposed the idea that any priest or any pope had any authority to forgive sin because God is the party offended, only God can forgive. Scriptural teaching. This is when the pope began to take notice, and in 1520, a year and a half after Luther's conversion, the pope sent an edict called the papal bull to shut down Luther's writing, and in particular, he demanded that all of Luther's books be gathered together and burned 60 days after the receipt of the papal bull. In the letter, it speaks of Luther, quote, as a wild boar who is destroying the vineyard of the Lord, who had bestowed jurisdiction over it to Peter and his successors, meaning, the pope was saying, God gave the church a garden. And the Pope is the one to care for that garden, and there's a wild boar in our garden. Now, in Europe, if a wild boar gets in your garden, do you know what you do to it? You kill it. And that's how he begins to write about Luther. When the day came to burn Luther's books, Martin Luther gathered a large crowd, and instead of taking his pamphlets out and lighting them on fire, he did light a big bonfire, and instead he took that papal bull that had been sitting on his desk for 60 days, and he took that and he threw it into the fire as a way of saying, it is the Pope's writing, not these teachings of Scripture, that are to be destroyed. Now, this is a highly significant moment because this was the day, sometime in October of 1520, that Martin Luther officially rejected papal authority and the Catholic Church. In other words, this is far more of a grounding moment of the Reformation than the 95 Theses. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church could not allow some random, dirty German monk to keep cutting into their wealth and their influence, so they determined to have him tried, and the case was put before a council of rulers in a place called Worms. Now, every child in the world loves it because it's spelled Worms, and it's called the Diet of Worms. And so here, 
They had a trial, and they pressed Martin Luther on his writings because they didn't actually believe that one man could produce all of these things. And so they said, are these truly your books? And finally, they believed him that, yes, these were indeed his books. And so they came with a verdict that he was required to either recant his statements and say, yes, I deny all of these and I agree with the Pope, or he would be excommunicated as a heretic and deemed as an enemy of the state, which meant that any person who was a Roman Catholic would have the freedom and right to execute him with no legal consequences. It was a way for the Roman Catholic Church to have plausible deniability in his death while also confirming that it would take place. Now remember, this is a real person that we're talking about. This is a real individual. This was a man like you or me. He was 37 like I am today. And this man was standing there and he was told basically, you must recant or you will die. And he was given some time to go and think. And there he went into a room where he prayed in deep, deep agony. And he says that he believed even Satan himself was tempting him to recant during that time. But by the grace of God, Luther came out of that room and he did what no one expected him to do. He stood and he said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of holy scripture or by evident reason, for I can believe neither pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the holy scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and I will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. The rest of Luther's story is fascinating. He was not killed because he was kidnapped by a prince and he was put into a tower where he translated the Bible into German and then there was a peasant revolt and there is a ton of really amazing and interesting things. But we're not here to worship Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a man. He got a lot of things right. He got a lot of things wrong. Today, the only reason we set any time to focus on him is because God allowed Luther to bring back to light the principle of the gospel that salvation, true and genuine salvation, comes through faith alone. Having covered ever so briefly with very little detail the life of Luther, I want to close by simply asking and answering four questions. Number one, what if you are Roman Catholic? Maybe you came here as a visitor today. If that's you, thank you for being here. I am truly grateful that the Lord brought you with us this morning. Please know that my goal is not to be against you, but to love you by exposing the falsehoods in the Roman Catholic Church. Please know that that religion is not in accord with what the Bible teaches. And I, I love you enough to tell you to stop chasing all the wrong things to find forgiveness of your sin. There's something that people talk about in American culture today called Catholic guilt. There's something that Roman Catholics bear with them that is Catholic guilt. The idea that they have to carry their sins on their shoulders all the time. And guess what? That is true, just like Martin Luther. But you can be set free from that. I speak to a lot of people who are part of the Roman Catholic Church, and sometimes, oftentimes, they tell me, well, I don't really see that there's that much difference between us. I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. They'll say, we have a lot of common ground. And my response to that generally is this. There are many things that I disagree with the Roman Catholic Church about, yes. But there is one area where I do strongly agree. After the Protestant Reformation took place, the Roman Catholic Church had what they called the Counter-Reformation, and the pinnacle of that was called the Council of Trent. It was, a, it was an expression there uh, at the Council of Trent, Session 6, where they said that if anyone believes in sola fide, they must be anathema, which means damned to hell. In other words, if the Roman Catholic Church 
The Roman Catholic Church teaches that if you believe what we believe, you cannot go to heaven. And we teach if you believe what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, you cannot go to heaven. In other words, we are different religions and we should not pretend otherwise. But I'm calling on you today, dear Catholic friends, to come to Jesus for salvation. Come to Jesus alone for salvation. You don't have to go through all the trappings of paganism that are associated with the Catholic Church. Recognize that He and He alone gave a one-time, all-sufficient, eternally accepted payment for sin, and if you will just believe in Him, you will be saved by grace through faith in Christ for the glory of God. Christian, let me ask you, how should this affect your relationship with the Roman Catholic Church? Well, the Roman Catholic Church is not just another option for people who are seeking God and trying to find Him. They do worship a lot at the Catholic Church. The problem is they worship everything except the God of the Bible. It is a false religion that undermines everything that makes the gospel good news. One thing that we need to guard against is this. Many, many times I have been told by people in this church and in churches outside that I've been part of in the past, people will say something like this. I have a friend. He's a Catholic or she's a Catholic but I know that they're really a Christian. Well, let me ask you, how do you know that? How do you know that? Would you actually say the same thing if there was somebody who was going into a Hindu temple and they were doing ritual washings and they were lighting incense to an altar with a god made of gold sitting on it? If they were burning candles to Vishnu, would you say, that person is a Hindu, but I, I know that they're really a Christian? If you would not say that, then what makes you think that anyone who goes into a temple of the Catholic Church where they claim to literally re-crucify the Lord of glory is actually a believer? A true Christian should be disturbed by the idolatry and the blasphemy and the paganism that surrounds them on every side in the presence of the Catholic Church. Knowing that Catholicism is a false religion built around a works-based faith, which is not my determination, by the way. They claim that and argue it clearly in the Council of Trent. They say that they are a faith based on works, which the Scripture teaches clearly against in Romans and Galatians. If you know that, it should change the way that you view people who are in that church. It should cause you to be all the more fervent in evangelizing them and calling them to truly repent and follow Christ. It should cause you to think carefully about attending baptisms or other religious events for family members who subscribe to pagan theology. It should cause you to see Roman Catholic people as a mission field, as people who are trapped, just like Martin Luther was trapped prior to his conversion, where he felt the terror, terrible weight of his sin over his head every day. We have a message that sets them free. The third question I'd like to ask and answer is, how should this affect our church? At the outset, we asked a question, what happens to a church when God is no longer there? the answer is it reverts to paganism. Well, that's what happened when the Catholic Church rejected the truth of the Scripture. And over centuries, we saw the devolution that occurred and what it became. But that is not exclusive to the Roman Catholic Church. All around us, we are watching formerly faithful denominations bow to the tides of culture and adopt abominable practices, things like ordaining homosexual or transgender pastors, how does that happen? Where does that come from? It happens because somewhere along the line, the people in that church reject the one true God, and just like an empty house reverts to a forest, those churches and denominations are reverting to paganism. 
Do you realize that one of the greatest revivals in world history occurred right here on the East Coast? The First Great Awakening, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, great preachers of the gospel, men who did immense work, and churches were transformed, and many came to Christ. But did you know that within two generations, most of those churches had become Unitarian, meaning they rejected the Trinity, they rejected God. At the outset, I told you that I was going to leave you with two Latin phrases. The first is sola fide, we are saved by faith alone. The second is this, semper reformanda, which means always reforming. You see, the worst thing that could happen to our church, Levittown Baptist Church, is not that it would cease to exist. The worst thing that could happen is that it would grow and that it would be vibrant, and it would be full of a lot of people gathering here every single week, and that we would have every chair fold for multiple services. But the gospel would be lost, and the Lord would not be worshipped. That is the worst, worst thing that could happen. Semper reformanda. As a church, we must dedicate ourselves to ensuring that the gospel is of first importance. The salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is taught and is believed. Don't fade. Don't waver. Don't give in to the whims of culture or the waves of doctrinal fads. By the grace of God, we are to hold fast to the truth. Semper reformanda. Always be reforming. That picture of reforming. Uh, this past week, I explained it to my kids' class, my Tuesday kids' class like this. I said, if you have a ball of Play-Doh and you squish it flat, you need to do some work to form it back into a ball. What is the ideal, the perfect that we are to form into? It is into the image of Christ that we are taught in the word of God. It is not some abstract principle. It is a reality that is found in the scripture. So we want to teach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, under the authority and teaching of the scripture alone for the glory of God alone. The last question that I'd like to ask and answer today is, how should this affect you individually? Let's be clear, this is a little different than a normal sermon that I preach. If this is your first time here, welcome, I'm glad that you're here. Typically, we do not have a sermon that flows around history this much. This was definitely a history lesson, but more so, it is supposed to be a worship lesson. Just like Luther, we should be relieved from that weight of sin that Jesus paid for once for all. If you are a Christian then you can rejoice and celebrate that Jesus paid it all. It's gone, and therefore all to him I owe. You see, we do believe that we were saved by works, but not ours. We were saved by the work of Jesus Christ. We do believe that we are to live out good works, but not in order to gain salvation, but because he has loved us, we then turn and we love him in response. If you love me, you will do what I say. John 14, 15. Brothers and sisters, we have been saved by faith, meaning we have done nothing to earn it. You have been given a gift of inestimable value. You have been given a treasure that you can't even comprehend. You have been given something that will never be taken away, that is imperishable and undefiled, kept in heaven for you. You have been given life in Christ, and that should cause you to rejoice. 
Just like Paul, you should say, God made us to, alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It is finished. Brothers and sisters, the just shall live by faith. It is that that sets us free. And if you are in Christ, you are free indeed. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that today we would understand that it, what it means that our life in Christ comes to us through faith and faith alone. Father, I ask that for any person in this room who has not yet been given the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, who has not yet trusted in him for salvation, Lord, I ask for anyone from whatever background that they would see Jesus clearly today and believe in him, that they would bow their knee to Jesus Christ, and they would follow him. Lord, I thank you that at the cross you forgave sinners of every kind, those who were religious, those who are irreligious, those who are from a Roman Catholic background, from those who are from any other background. We thank you, Lord, that you save sinners through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we ask, Lord, that by what we have heard today, we would be enthralled with Jesus Christ, the one who did all of the work on our behalf. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.